Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk with a Doc, the show where we bring your questions to Providence St. Joseph Health Medical Experts for insight and information. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, and here with me today is Dr. Brian Cheesebro, an anesthesiologist at Providence Portland Medical Center. And today we're answering your questions about anesthesia. Remember, everyone, all of our questions come from our listeners via social media. We can be found on Twitter at PSJH and on Facebook under Providence St. Joseph Health. Use the hashtag Talk with a Doc, that's hashtag Talk with a Doc, for a chance to hear your questions on our episodes. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Okay, let's get started by welcoming our expert today, Dr. Cheesebro. So, Dr. Cheesebro, tell me a little bit about your role and how you got into anesthesia. Uh, so, I am a clinical anesthesiologist at Providence Portland, here in Portland, Oregon, and I've been here for just about 10 years. Um, I initially chose anesthesia as a medical specialty because um, I like the fast-paced nature of the operating room, but I also like medicine as opposed to surgery. And so anesthesiology really combines the two together um, in a time scale that's compressed. So you see medicine happening on the order of seconds to minutes to hours as opposed to um, medicine as an internist where it's on the scale of days to weeks to months sure. to years. Sure. All right. And um, what's the difference between an anesthetist and an anesthesiologist? So an anesthesiologist is a physician, um, medical school, residency training program. Um, an anesthetist is a nurse, a uh, certified registered nurse anesthetist. And uh, they go through nursing school they spend some time as a critical care nurse before they're eligible to apply for uh, nurse anesthetist school. Uh, some of them do a residency program after that. Some of them don't. Uh, most commonly, uh, they practice in collaboration with anesthesiologists as oh. a care team. So that as a where a single anesthesiologist might be working with three or four. Uh, separate nurse anesthetist simultaneously Okay, would as, I a, ever, as a consultant. Would I ever see a nurse anesthetist without an anesthesiologist? In some states, uh, some states have what are called opt-out clauses where they allow nurse anesthetists to practice independently. Okay. Uh, particularly states that have done that have, have, have exercised that option in order to help provide anesthesia care at uh, critical access rural hospitals. Makes sense, where mm -hmm. it's harder to get enough people. And okay. Absolutely. And what are the different types of anesthesia? So there are, there are several different approaches to anesthesia, and it depends on the, the patient and the procedure. Um, there's general anesthesia, which is what most people think of when they think of anesthesia, and that's where you're completely asleep. That's the knock me out. That's right? the I'm out cold. <laughs> Um, I have no memory. I have no sense that time has passed. Um, general anesthesia usually requires uh, the anesthesiologist to take over the patient's physiology. So during general anesthesia, we breathe for you. We control your heart and your blood pressure. And we kind of take care of all of you while the surgeon works on what he or she needs to work on. Got it. Uh, so that's general anesthesia. There's regional anesthesia, where, which can be used at times uh, by applying local anesthesia 
at the side of a specific nerve, either in your spine or uh, along a limb. Mm -hmm. And by putting that local anesthesia and numbing medicine right on the nerve, it kind of deadens the nerve, doesn't kill it, but it quiets the nerve mm -hmm. so that you don't feel anything. Uh, so the so the surgery can proceed uh, safely and comfortably. And is that so? If I was maybe having foot surgery, would I have a regional, or would I probably still have a full? So often with foot surgery, you'll have a combination of of regional uh, anesthesia, but most patients um, also require either deep sedation or general anesthesia mm -hmm. because during a foot surgery, the surgeons often apply a um, compression tourniquet oh, above okay. your foot, mm -hmm. uh, which is inflated after you're asleep mm -hmm. so that during the surgery, you don't lose any blood, Makes but sense. that tourniquet itself is not anesthetized by the numbing medicine in your foot and the tourniquet hurts. Okay. So you need to be somewhat asleep to tolerate the tourniquet. So give me a good example then of when regional is most like most commonly used. So I'd say the most common surgery that's performed under regional anesthesia is cesarean section. Got it. Okay. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Um, so I'm going to ask the question, when you are going for the quote unquote knockout and they do the countdown, what do people normally get to? That's a good. <laughs> so uh, my favorite patient who demanded, demanded the countdown uh, went 10, 9, 9. <laughs> nine and so i didn't know later to give him nine or seven i gave him nine because that's kind of what he's got stuck on that's but that's about as far as people usually yeah. get okay everyone fights or a lot of people fight but no one wins got it well it makes sense well and frankly i would want to go under as quickly yeah. as possible I think. absolutely um well how do you determine which type of anesthesia is appropriate for the patient is it based on their height their weight their medical history the procedure all of the above it's mainly their medical history and the type of procedure. Some types of anesthesia are just uh, too much for someone with congestive heart failure or um, severe lung disease or, or things like that. Um, similarly, some types of procedures just you ha general anesthesia is the only safe option. So it's a combination of both. Um, and then if there's if there's no safety benefit either for the to benefit the patient um, due to their medical history or the nature of the procedure, then it becomes what the patient's most comfortable with and what they want. Okay. And so, if if there's a clear safety benefit, I'll tell people and I'll kind of steer them to that mm -hmm. option. But if it's if it's six of one, half a dozen of the other, I'll be honest and tell them that and I'll say, "What do you want? Mm -hmm. I can do whatever you want." And do you get people asking you for specific types of anesthesia and for specific purposes or reasons? A lot of people want um, either as little as possible mm -hmm. or to be totally out. Okay. Right. And um, when it's, it's, it's anesthesia is scary for people. They don't, it's, it's scary to come into the hospital. It's scary to have a surgery and, and certainly they're meeting us in person the first time right before they go into the operating room and that's they're they're giving up a lot of control to sure, a stranger sure. and that's intimidating uh, so a lot of people don't you know want as little anesthesia as possible uh, other people are concerned with the effect of anesthesia on their um, mental clarity afterward mm -hmm. um, so we factor that in particularly for the elderly um, 
those are those are the main drivers of mm-hmm. of patient selection. I do know though that you're very focused on the um, kind of environmental um, impact of anesthesia, and so you've been focusing a lot on how do we kind of cut down the the uh, carbon footprint of that. So, are you starting to see more people ask about um, environmentally friendly anesthesia options? Uh, recently, yes. Uh, there was a recent OPB. Um, article about that and as a result the the public has gained some awareness about the environmental impacts of varying forms of anesthesia Um, and that was a it was very reassuring to me the first time I had a patient come back and ask ask me um, now you're going to use the least environmentally um, toxic form of anesthesia aren't you and I said yes of course and then you kind of like did the high five yeah exactly (laughs) it's awesome well we have a lot of questions that came in from people um this one is really good um can people actually be allergic to anesthesia a true anesthesia allergy is extremely rare but it's possible and anesthesia isn't one medication um it's many that combine to make sure that patients are um, safe and comfortable. So being allergic to the true anesthetic is very unusual, but there are other other medications that are routinely used during the course of an anesthetic um, that, that some people are allergic to. Okay. Well, how about this one? Um, can I build up a tolerance if I have too many surgeries? Not from, not from anesthesia. Some people have um, increased anesthetic requirements um, due to their life outside of the hospital, (laughs) right? So um, patients who who drink a lot of alcohol Mm -hmm. require more anesthesia. Certainly patients who take chronic opioid medications require more anesthetic and more pain medicine around the time of a surgery. But just because you've had one surgery doesn't mean that you're going to need more anesthesia the next time. Okay. Usually your, your tolerance to anesthesia is what it is and it's what it will be. And do you get a lot of that information from the patient chart? Or I know you said you meet people face to face the first time, but you actually try to talk to them a day before the surgery as well. Correct? Yeah. Our practice here in, in Portland, I'm part of Oregon anesthesiology group and our, our practice is that we call all of our patients the night before and we get, uh, mainly it's to kind of go over the last minute instructions and, um, provide in broad strokes what the next day will be like. Um, but really it's also to, it's really to reach out and, and address any specific concern or fear Mm -hmm. the night before. Uh, patients tend not to sleep well the night before surgery. So, and if they're not sleeping well because they're scared, then we like to try to allay their specific fears so that they're comfortable as they get to the hospital as well. Sure. Well, you mentioned people maybe who are on chronic um, pain medication or something. How, um, how far before the surgery do you have to stop taking medications? That is a complicated question. I bet, right. Um, (laughs) Because it really depends on the medication and why you're taking it, mm-hmm. right? Um, pain medicine is kind of its own separate deal. Um, the most important thing is to to have a plan with your primary doctor or your surgeon, or in the best case scenario, um, like we have at Providence Portland, we have a pre-anesthesia clinic 
that's staffed by um, an anesthesiologist and nurse practitioners who are specifically um, trained to assess risk for individual patients and optimize their care as they lead into their surgery, right? So um, to identify um, clinical problems and get them treated Mm -hmm. to minimize the risk. And then a lot of those, that's the best place to go in in terms of getting specific advice on, well, you need to stop this medication. You need to make sure you take this one. You need to wean down on this one. But in again, in broad strokes, I would say, the classes of medication that you really need to be careful about and and get some some direction from your physician prior to surgery are um, blood pressure medicine, blood thinners too, right? Blood right. thinners yeah. for yeah. sure, and diabetes medicine. Oh. Those are um, and insulin. And how do you manage your insulin leading into a surgery? Uh, you you don't want to do that on your own. You need to do that under some medical direction. I'm not, I'm not going to go out on that one and make my own decisions. Yep. Um, well, this question says, does the anesthesiologist stay during the entire surgery? Yes. So uh, from the time patients, the anesthesiologist leaves the preoperative area until they are awake and they're safe in recovery, that anesthesiologist or, or nurse anesthetist is always within about three feet of that patient. They oh. never leave. Um, their job is first and foremost to make sure that, that the patient is safe, right? So they watch over their heart and their breathing and their blood pressure. I mean, for patients who, who have a cardiologist and a pulmonologist and a nephrologist and an endocrinologist and a neurologist, when you go to the operating room, your anesthesiologist becomes all of those for you while you're in the operating room. Um, and they don't leave until your surgery is done and you're awake and you're safe. So safety is always first. That's the top priority. But we're also there to make sure that people are comfortable when they wake up. So we, we, we work hard to, to make sure that patients wake up quickly mm-hmm. when the surgery is done. So we try to do what we can to minimize your hangover after anesthesia. Sure, sure. Um, we try to reduce nausea and vomiting afterward, which is very common. Yeah, how do you do that? Because that was a question we got from a lot of people is what can you do to not be queasy afterward? There are several uh, there are several medicines that we use to try and prevent people from feeling sick to their stomach. Um, and then we, we know from large population studies that there are risk factors for postoperative nausea. Mm. So especially when we see patients with a lot of risk factors, we tend to be far more aggressive with trying to prevent it. Um, there are other things that we can do to treat postoperative nausea. For those patients who are um, who come in for a subsequent surgery and they say, I get really sick afterward, I usually say, well, have you ever had surgery where you did not feel sick? And they either say, yes, every time I tell them, they give me something in my IV and then I don't get sick. Okay, okay good, so we'll do that, right? Other people, if they say, I'm always sick. I've always been sick, mm-hmm. no matter what anybody does. And then for those people, oftentimes what hasn't been tried up to that point is to completely avoid using anesthesia gas um, and to do everything you can to avoid opioid pain medicine because those two 
are the biggest causes for post-operative nausea. So you can, you can do a whole um, course of anesthesia entirely based on your IV, and okay. your risk of nausea goes, is almost zero. If you avoid using opiates and use other types of pain medicine instead, then you're really, you've, you've just reduced your risk by many orders of magnitude. So for people who come in saying, I'm always sick, then I really, I shift and I try sure. and do, do a really nausea focused anesthetic. That's a lot of, a lot of focus. That's really nice. Mm -hmm. You, you said there's some people that are at higher risk for nausea. What are those risk factors typically? Women. Okay. With a history of motion sickness or previous nausea. Well, I'm out. Yep. <laughs> I'm two um, for two. <laughs> two for two. The use of opiates around the surgery. So if it's a surgery that you anticipate the need for opioid pain medicine to control the pain. Mm -hmm. And then I almost hesitate to say the last one, um, but it's non-smokers are at a higher risk. It's really? not a reason to Don't start smoking. smoking. You heard it here. Do it's not It's not smoke. a reason to start smoking. Um, but for whatever reason, um, it's probably a bad a thing. Risk. It's probably because they've like deadened something through the smoke. Let's probably, just say that. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> um, well, let's go back to questions. Let's see. Um, how do I best prepare for anesthesia? Uh, I would listen I would, to your advice. Uh, yeah, I would. <laughs> I would, um, trying to figure out how to say that. Well, um, I would ask your surgeon um, what his or her recommendations are leading into the surgery. Mm -hmm. um, I would I would reach out to your primary care doctor. Uh, if you're having surgery at a facility that has a pre-anesthesia clinic, I would I would ask for an appointment or a contact from that clinic. Um, our clinic at Providence Portland doesn't see every patient physically, but they the goal is that eventually they will touch every patient um, either via phone call or a visit um, whatever is most appropriate but um, getting advice it's not something that you should just stroll into We're not winging it. and think that it's all fine um, perioperative medicine which is kind of what it, it's it's the medicine surrounding your surgery it's it's how do you prepare it's how do you take care of patients in the operating room and then how do you take care of them afterward mm -hmm. that is a, a subspecialty of anesthesia that is rapidly evolving and it is worthy of its own fellowship at this point and it's worthy of its own specialty mm -hmm. in my opinion well you just talked about you know talking to your surgeon and talking to about your primary care physician which on the show we always encourage people to have a primary care physician it makes a huge difference what about trauma surgery? Is like the ER surgery different from an anesthesia perspective? Because maybe you don't know enough about the patient. Yeah, trauma, trauma surgery and trauma anesthesia. It's a, it's a separate game mm -hmm. for sure. It's um, you're doing whatever you can with, with with whatever information you have or don't have, and a lot of times um, those are particularly challenging cases because we're often diagnosing chronic medical problems during the course of the operation, um, which the patient knew about, but, but we didn't know about, um, as the procedure started. And so those, those cases are difficult without question. There's, there's, um, uh, there's a lot going on. 
Well, it does sound very nerve-wracking. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be joined again by Dr. Brian Cheesebro talking about anesthesia. Watching the night sky Or a beautiful sunrise Well, there's so much they hold And just like them old stars I see that you've come so far To be right where you are Won't give up on us Even if the skies get rough I'm giving you all my love I'm still looking up And when you're needing your space To do some navigating I'll be here patiently waiting to see what you find. Even the stars, they burn. Some even fall to the earth. We got a lot to learn. God knows we're be someone who walks away so easily I'm here to stay and make the difference that I can make Our differences they do a lot to teach us how to use the tools and gifts we got here we got a lot at stake And in the end you're still my friend at least we did intend for us to work we didn't break we didn't burn we had to learn how to bend without the world Caving in, I had to learn what I got and what I'm not and who I am. I won't give up on us, even if the skies get rough. I'm giving you all my love. I'm still looking up, I'm still looking up. Skies get rough. I'm giving you all my love. 
And we're back with Talk with the Doc, and we're talking about anesthesia today, and we are taking questions from our audience. Um, here's a great one. Do people dream while under anesthesia? Uh, they do not. What? Uh, we yeah. all think we do. You all think you do. <laughs> and and uh, there's a period at which you dream, and that's right as you're waking up. But during a steady state of general anesthesia, you're, you're, um, you actually, there's little to no brain activity going mm -hmm. on at all. Um, and general anesthesia works on your brain. It also works on your spinal cord. And uh, for certain neurosurgical procedures, we're monitoring your, the EEG or the mm -hmm. electrical signal of your brain. Um, and so from those cases, we know that anas general anesthesia at a standard dose um, more often than not creates a condition called burst suppression where there's little to no electrical activity in your brain. But as you emerge from anesthesia, as you go through the process of waking up, you do go through this period where, um, you're, where a lot of people dream, um, but you're not dreaming the whole time, just at the very end. Okay. Well, kind of similarly, do patients talk during a surgery if they're under anesthesia? Not general anesthesia. But, uh, you know, anesth anesthesia exists in the spectrum from being wide awake with no anesthesia to being sedated where you're still awake but you're feeling mellow um, to being sleepy but responsive to voice. Is that twilight? Which yeah. one's twilight? Twilight is more where you're responsive to a shoulder shake. Gotcha. So right? it's still in the spectrum. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, then it's... Um, it progresses to general anesthesia where there is no response even to a surgery, which is kind of what you want. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But people will talk during those levels of sedation. Mm -hmm. Um, but they don't really talk during, they don't talk during general anesthesia. So we shouldn't really worry though, that we're going to tell you some secret thing that we've done in our life. Oh no, you should worry. <laughs> <laughs> we should get to know you very uh, yeah, well. Right. You should, um, people will say some crazy stuff, but, it's all held in confidence. Sure, there, there sure. is a doctor-patient relationship that exists, and um, I will not disclose any crazy statements sure. that have been made to me. Well, I kind <laughs> of actually knew the answer to that because my father told me many years ago that he had a follow-up with one of his surgeons, and he said, you know, I just wanted you to know you said such and such during, and I, we're all dying to know the story behind that. Yeah. And he ended up telling them the story. Then he came home and told us, and we were like, why would you tell that story? <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess I will tell one story because it's not embarrassing, but... Um, two weeks ago, I was taking care of this lovely woman who was sedated and we were, we were waiting for the surgeon to, to arrive to the operating room. So she was under some level of anesthesia and she was giving us all kinds of interesting cooking advice. <laughs> and it was clearly a passion of hers. And she That's was awesome. just, she, you could not stop her from talking. <laughs> right. And then the surgeon arrived and we had her go to sleep with general anesthesia and then um, as she woke up, she picked up right where she no. left off. Yeah. <laughs> and I just looked at the recovery room nurse and said, this is what it's going to be like. That's amazing. Sit down, pull up a chair. Yeah. Take she notes. We're yeah, going to go exactly. through a whole recipe at this point, right? <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, well, are there kind of, of surgeries where you would actually be awake? Yeah. Uh, for a lot of regional anesthesia procedures, mm -hmm. cesarean section, okay. patients want to be awake. They want to be 
awake and participate in the birth of their child, sure. right? And and uh, other people are, if if the surgery is amenable to a regional anesthetic technique, patients want to be awake. They want to be chatting with the surgeon. They want to see the screen. No way. Um, I don't want, knock me out, wake me up. Do. Do. I do some not want to distract do. the doctor right. either. Right. Like you focus on what you do. Right. Uh, kind of the most extreme version of awake surgery is uh, there are certain times, certain kinds of brain surgery mm-hmm. where we have to wake patients up in sure. the middle in order to test their brain function Make during sure they the surgery. Still say words, that sort of thing. Exactly. I mean, we've always seen it on the movies, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, that that I, you know, <laughs> I have some bones it to pick with, with producers, <laughs> but uh, for that one, it tends to be accurate. Well, is um, this question says, is there a maximum amount of anesthesia that can be given to a patient? Well, you can certainly overdose on anesthesia um, in the moment. You know, it doesn't build up cumulatively over your life. Mm-hmm. But um, an overdose of anesthesia eventually results in cardiovascular collapse. Oh, okay. Um, a drop in your blood pressure that becomes so dangerous that your heart stops. Mm-hmm. Um, that is extremely unusual. Um, but that would be an anesthesia overdose. So I'm sorry, but your job seems really stressful to me. I mean, you've got lives in your hands. You've got all these different factors. Is there like a career expectancy? Like people do this for 10 years and then say, I'm going to do something less stressful. Or is this like a passion that you just play out through your entire life? Everybody's different. You know, when we're as medical students and when it becomes time for us to kind of select our our subsequent medical career, be it internal medicine or anesthesiology, or my wife is a radiation oncologist. Um, when it comes time to make that decision, you don't really, a lot of people don't really know the true reality of what they're getting themselves sure. into. Um, none of us do. None I mean, of us some do. of us decide we want to be pharmacists and then we change our mind and go into marketing. I'm just saying. Just saying, right? Um, so there's, there are certainly people who enter um, the field of anesthesiology and then realize that it's not a good fit, and then they kind of self-select out. But for the most part, I'd say people people who love it stick with it, mm-hmm. and they've self-selected to be able to, to manage that fear uh, in the operating room mm-hmm. because it, it, it does happen. It's a lot. You've got a lot. Well, this question kind of makes me laugh. I don't know why, but do I need more anesthesia if I'm heavier or taller? Uh, the IV-based anesthetics mm-hmm. are um, dosed by weight okay. in general. Well, then it's a great question. Um, so when you're... And when general anesthesia is induced, uh, we get people to sleep with medicine through the IV. So that initial dose is usually dosed by weight. Okay. Um, I kind of personally, I dose it to effect. I give a weight-based dose, which um, because everyone's physiology is different and not everyone needs the full dose by the book. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a series of reflexes that you lose as you enter general anesthesia. And uh, I test all of those before I do anything else. But yeah, the IV-based anesthetics are by the book dosed by weight. Inhaled anesthesia gas is doesn't matter how much you weigh or how tall you are. All right. Well, why is it that some older patients are more at risk for complications with anesthesia? Or is that a fact? 
Sure. Uh, the elderly um, are at, at more are at higher risk based on what kind of medical conditions they bring in. Mm -hmm. The older we are, the more medical sure. con conditions we've collected to that point. So um, if you have heart disease, if you have lung disease, uh, if you have pre-existing dementia um, or pre-existing strokes, um, those are all things that we factor in. Um, and a big part of anesthesia is not just, is not keeping people asleep during the, I'd say that's the smallest part of the job. The biggest part of the job is looking at a patient like that and, and looking at all their medical conditions, assessing their risk for the surgery and anesthesia, assessing whether there's more room to optimize that risk or to reduce that risk. And if there is room to reduce the risk, then we postpone the surgery oh, wow, okay. to reduce the risk. If there's nothing we can do to further reduce the risk, then it becomes a conversation of, this is your risk. Do you accept it? Right, right. And as long as everyone understands the risk that we're taking, the surgeon, the anesthesiologist, and the patient, we all have to be on the same page in terms of risk assessment. And it is what it is. I mean, someone with congestive heart failure has a higher risk than someone who doesn't. That's sure. just that makes sense. nature of the beast. Yeah. Wow. Well, the work you guys are doing is great. I love this. This was super helpful. I'm sure a lot of people got a lot of answers that they had questions for. So thank you, Dr. Cheesebro, for joining us today on Talk with the Doc and to everyone for listening and sending in your questions. We look forward to future topics with more experts from Providence St. Joseph Health. Make sure to follow us on social media at PSJH on Twitter and on Instagram and under Providence St. Joseph Health on Facebook. To learn more about our missions, programs, and services, visit future.psjhealth.org. Thanks for listening.